Well, amen, huh? Thanks for uh, coming tonight. It's good to see everybody uh, uh, that's uh, with us this evening. Um, tonight we have, again, the great privilege of uh, coming together as uh, members in the body of Christ and sharing and encouraging each other, uh, stopping and considering what God has done uh, for us, to consider God's goodness and to thank Him for that and uh, for who He is and all the wonderful things that He uh, has done for us. Uh, as you're aware, in the uh, society in which uh, we're living, in an increasingly secularized society, uh, there is not a great impulse to give thanks or to be a thankful people. In, in fact, many in our uh, culture don't even know whom uh, they would give thanks to or um, who would they uh, address uh, to give thanks uh, because most people don't believe in, in God. Most people in their pride and their... Uh, Self-sufficiency, uh, 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 feel like they're self-reliant, self-directed, they don't need God. And, and you see that everywhere. You see it on a retail level, if, if nowhere else, but I think you see it often everywhere. Uh, where a culture on a retail level doesn't even celebrate uh, uh, Thanksgiving anymore. We go right from Halloween right into Christmas, right? There's lights and trees and stuff like that. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've noticed around town there's an increasing number of... Um, uh, Christmas lights up that even go before Thanksgiving. It's not an official rule because sometimes we break in our home, but one of my, uh, one of my uh, uh, children have encouraged us at home not to uh, play Christmas music until we get through Thanksgiving, and I think that's kind of a good idea, just uh, right, so we don't completely pass that over all, all together. But a lack of thankfulness is really something we shouldn't be surprised at because ingratitude or a lack of thankfulness really is the sin that characterizes uh, the unregenerate man of the unbeliever. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Right? That's the, uh, that's the, uh, the heart of the unbeliever, ingratitude. Even though the world knows that God exists, they fail to honor him. Uh, they don't want to honor him. They don't want to thank him. In fact, they despise him. Uh, they're hostile, really, in their opposition to him. Uh, this one whom the unbeliever says they don't believe in, but nevertheless, they're hostile towards him. Again, which is just the irrationality of unbelief. Um, to, to, uh, and they despise him, they, they hate his goodness and don't uh, uh, want his love, they scorn his love. But again, Paul said we shouldn't be surprised about that. Second Timothy 3, 1 says, Realize this, in the last days difficult times will come, uh, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, uh, disobedient to parents, and then he says this, ungrateful, unholy, in the last times, in the days in which uh, we are living, ingratitude or unthankfulness is going to be more and more the characteristic uh, of an unregenerate people. And the closer we come to the return of Christ, people are going to be more and more wicked and less and less thankful, which is exactly what you see in the culture all around us. Uh, people are constantly complaining, uh, bickering, hardly ever, if ever, giving thanks let me ask you to stop and think about when's the last time you saw a large group of people get together, either on TV or anywhere for that matter, to get together and to demonstrate their thankfulness? Probably never, right? Unless you come here on Wednesday night, of course, in Bible Church, right? But you're certainly not seeing that in the culture. Everybody's protesting this and angry about that. How many people get together just to give thanks? And again, for most of America, Thanksgiving is nothing more than a secular holiday, even if it's that. And as you probably noticed, as I have, there's an increasing push uh, to get rid of it altogether within the society. 
for most people, it's nothing more than a secular holiday, nothing more than just a day filled with some kind of sentiments and of bygone days and football and an excuse to overeat, etc. and so forth. But that's not the way it should be for us as followers of Christ. We who've been saved by God's grace through the shed blood of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we gather together each Lord's Day, and we gather together on the night before Thanksgiving Day, and we worship Him, and we thank Him, amen, because we're a thankful people. We have much to thank our God for, this Father in Heaven who's loved us so much that He sent His Son into the world for us. So again, being a thankful people is who we are. Being a thankful people is part of uh, what it means to be filled with the uh, Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 says, Be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Verse 20, Ephesians 5, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. So we are commanded by Scripture to always be giving thanks for all things because, again, thankfulness really is one of the distinguishing marks of humanity that separates man from the animal world, Right? And when's the last time you gave your dog a bowl of food? And he said, thanks, appreciate it very much, right? And so you go into the, to the, to the diner and you eat and you don't give thanks and you're acting just like your dog does, right? I mean, humanity is separated by an understanding that they're created in the image of God and they should be thankful to God, their creator, who's given them all good things, right? So we, we need to be a thankful people. Give thanks always at all times, right? Uh, and all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the mark of the believer, guided and controlled by the person of the Holy Spirit. Uh, a spirit-filled man is a thankful man. And one writer says this, how can we not be thankful when we owe everything to God? Right? How can we not be thankful? Another writer says, indeed, he who thanks God for his mercy shall never want mercy for which to thank, for every stream should lead us to the fountain. Right, So we, we should be a thankful people, always giving thanks. That's what we're commanded to do, and that's, again, uh, who we are. Uh, Colossians 3 and 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Hebrews um, uh, 13, uh, verse 15, through him, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. So again, uh, part of our life really should be marked by this uh, attitude of thankfulness. First uh, Thessalonians five sixteen, and everything give thanks. And then he says, for this is God's will for you in Christ. That's the, God, uh, God's will is that we as God's people would be a thankful people. We who are in Christ are uh, 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 always giving thanks, right? Uh, we, we need to be the, have the attitude that says, look, in all things we're going to worship. and all things we're going to come, we're going to bow our knee before you. And we're going to acknowledge your sovereignty, your goodness, even in hard times. And we're going to submit ourselves to your will. We're going to submit ourselves to your purpose. Yeah, even when things are difficult, and in all things, always, uh, we're going to be thankful in, in Christ Jesus. Now, if you're new with us tonight um, into the fellowship, maybe you've not been to one of these uh, services before. We do these a little bit different. Um, I'm just going to share a few thoughts, and that wasn't anything other than just some random thoughts off the top of my head. But I'm going to share with you a few thoughts out of a passage of Scripture. It's not really going to be a full exposition of the text, but just a few verses out of a text. And that's just a, a way for us to get our mind again headed towards God, thinking about God, being thankful for what God has done for us. And, and then I'm going to stop and I'm going to give you an opportunity uh, to speak. Uh, uh, Carl, are we going with the microphone tonight? Good. All right. So there's going to be Carl on the microphone. And at, at the end here, he's going to come around and you're going to have an opportunity to stand where you're at and uh, tell us uh, what you're thankful 
four. And then as we end our night together, we'll all take the Lord's table and thank the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father for sending Christ into the world. Now, what I want you to do tonight, the passage I want to look at is in Ephesians 2. So if you have your Bible, open it to Ephesians 2. If not, grab a pew Bible right in front of you. Ephesians chapter 2. And again, it's not going to be a full exposition. Just some comments out of a few verses of just a tremendous portion of Scripture that is familiar but really speaks to us about God's uh, marvelous grace. Ephesians 2, verse 4. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. And by grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's one of the most wonderful portions of scripture, I think, found any place in the Bible. It's a portion of scripture that really lifts us upward uh, to the heights of heaven and really brings us face to face with uh, the marvelous grace of God towards us in Christ Jesus. And the first two words, uh, the first two words there in verse four, uh, but God are, are, are little words, but they're tremendously, tremendously important. Because those two words, but God, take us from the realm of hopelessness and despair into the hope of the gospel. But God, those two words take us from no, from condemnation to no condemnation. The two little words, but God, it's uh, known as an adverse of the, the word but. It's uh, introducing a contrast. It's a transition point that introduces a, a contrasting situation. Verse 4, but God comes after the introductory uh, statement in uh, chapter 2. So look up there at verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we all too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the wraths but God. So to say that we are in a desperate condition, mankind's in a desperate condition, would be an understatement. An understatement of the greatest kind. We can't solve our problems. We can't solve our issues. We don't have enough wisdom. We don't have enough power. We're impotent to do so. Now, that doesn't stop us from trying, right? Because men have been trying for thousands of years, apart from God, to try to uh, solve their problems. But you might just want to pop your head up and look around and see that things are not getting any better, but things are getting actually what? No, much worse. Much worse. Moment by moment, exponentially worse. And mankind only has one hope. The only hope of mankind is that God would intervene. Is that God would intervene into the affairs of mankind. That that's the glorious good news of the of the gospel. The fact that God has done that very thing. Those two little words, but God really is that. If you wanted to boil it all down, that's the Christian's message. Uh, the Christian's message to the world, the intervention of God, but God. So again, it's a contrast here between who men are in their natural state, who we once used to be apart from Christ, compared to who God is, God the Holy One, God the All-Powerful One, the, the God who is rich in mercy, the God who has a tremendous love for a fallen mankind. 
A God whose exceedingly rich grace and his kindness has come and intervened into the affairs of mankind because apart from uh, God's intervention, as it lays out in the first three verses, we're all desperate. We'd all still be desperate in a desperate condition, dead in trespasses and sins, completely alienated from God, completely alienated, cut off from the life of God, walking according to the course of this world under the power of the prince of the air, uh, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, living in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and by nature children of wrath as everyone else in the world. Completely alienated from God and the life of God again, blind to the glory of Christ, perishing. Unable to hear the voice of God, unable to uh, hear the voice of the Holy Spirit with no love for God. No sensitivity or awareness of his reality. Again, carried along, dominated by an evil world system where God is shut out, where rebellion is everywhere, where disobedience is commonplace committing acts of treason and acts of insubordination, refusing and unable to subject ourselves to the person of God. And again, in bondage to Satan, dominated by our own sinful lusts and passions, and the just object of God's wrath. Nothing but people fit for eternal condemnation, headed towards a final eternity in hell apart from God, facing a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the eternal fire the eternal fury of fire that consumes the adversaries. That's who we were. And that's what we deserved. All of us, judgment, condemnation. But God. But God stepped in and God did what only God could do. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ and by grace you have been saved. So again, I think those two little words, but God, are perhaps the most important words in the entire English language put together. But God. But God is actually where sin and mercy meet. But God. Someone has uh, said those two words mark the difference between life and death, between a life of turmoil and a life of peace, between a life of sin and sorrow and a life lived to the glory of God, uh, between uh, salvation and damnation, between heaven and hell. Those two little words, but God. God's intervention. Now, God's intervention is not only a personal thing, but it's a precious thing. Look what it says there. But God being here, is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. That word rich means abounding, wealthy, an overabundance, without measure, unlimited. Paul is saying, by nature, God, who is the only God, God of the universe, possesses an overabundant, measureless, unlimited quantity of mercy. And the understanding of the word uh, mercy means kindness or goodwill. And it's kindness or goodwill towards the miserable, towards the afflicted, those, those uh, uh, that, are, that are afflicted by sin and with a desire to, to help them. The uh, commentator D. Edmund Hebert defines mercy like this. He says it's the self-motivated, spontaneous, loving kindness of God which causes him to deal in compassion and tender uh, affection with the miserable and distressed. I mean, again, this is the self-motivated character of God, his loving kindness. And and again, this God who we serve, this God who rules the universe, who created the universe, again, the text says he's rich in mercy. One of the things that I always uh, find astounding uh, in, in the New Testament is how many times when you read of Christ uh, interacting with people who've got great difficulties, and the writer will say that he was moved with compassion. Right? He was moved with compassion. 
He, he often looked on those who were afflicted and downtrodden and, and lost in their sin. And he has a, he has a, uh, splanchnon is actually the word, but it just, it's a kind of funny word. It just means from the gut. This feeling of compassion, mercy. So he sees a need and out of the inner nature of who he is, there's this driving passion to reach out and love and to do something and to alleviate the suffering of men. And again, if you look at the previous condition of who we were back up and again, the first three verses, well, you can never find a group more afflicted, right? And more miserable, more in need of uh, someone who's superior to come and show them compassion and mercy. So in our wicked condition, in our fallen condition, in our, spite of our continual a rebellion and depraved state, God looked upon us in mercy, took pity upon us, moved by compassion to do something to help us uh, in, in our condition. Now, it would have been very fair of God and just if he just wiped us out the moment we took a breath in his universe because we are not holy and he is. He would have been right and just. People are always talking today about they want justice. I'm telling you what, that's the most stupid thing amongst a number of stupid things you could ever hear people say. The one thing you do not want, my friend, if you've not repented, is you don't want justice. And if you have repented, you want, don't want justice either. You want mercy. Justice is not going to get you what you think it's going to get you. Because what you deserve is condemnation. We need mercy. And God, in his kindness, has, uh, has treated us with mercy. And again, mercy is the idea of not receiving what we deserve. So in God's kindness, based out of the inward nature of his character, he, in his mercy, he's turned away his wrath from us, as we are rightly called children of wrath. He extended to us kindness, mercy, forgiveness of sin, salvation. And again, he doesn't give us the judgment that we deserve. Well, why is that? Well, the text tells us. God being rich in mercy, and here it is, because of his great love with which he loved us. So God's mercy flows to us as sinners because of God's great love. The, the word means much, many, large. God in his large love, God in his much love. God in his great love with which he loved us. So again, God in his very character, his nature is intrinsically kind, intrinsically overflowing with mercy and love. And in his great love, he reaches out to the vile, to the sinful, to the rebellious, to the depraved, the, the destitute, the condemned human beings like us, we who have rightly earned his just condemnation and eternal uh, judgment, we who hated him, we who hated him and loved our sin more than we loved him or loved our sin more than we loved anything else. And he grants to us salvation. He grants to us forgiveness of sin and, and eternal blessing through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Tremendous truth. He grants to us that great gift of salvation, forgiveness, and, and eternal blessings through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, because we were so bad, so vile, so corrupt, that nothing but the second person of the Blessed Trinity, leaving eternity, stepping into time, putting on our humanity, standing in our place and dying for us, taking the stroke that was due us. Nothing except that could ever save us from our sin. Nothing could reconcile us to God except the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing or no one else. And, and, and that is something we hear a lot. And I think, again, over-familiarity sometimes is a problem for us. 
Because that, that statement there is unbelievably great truth. But it is so spectacularly unique, so unusual, so unprecedented. We've got to make sure we don't overlook that fact that we've heard so many times. Because there's no other religious system in the entire world. Not a one. Of the multitudes of false religious systems where their so-called deity comes and dies for or in the place of that deity's followers. Not a one. Right? Of all the false religious systems in the world, they all demand the worshiper to come and do something to appease the wrath of the angry God against their sin. But it's only the truth of biblical Christianity that states the fact that there's nothing that man can do to appease the wrath of the holy, angry God towards their sin. Therefore, God, out of his tremendous love for man, came and did what only God could do because man can't do it for himself, but God did. That's the tremendous truth of those words, but God. Not one of the world's false religions, not one of the world's false prophets or false gods or false deities ever did what Jesus Christ has done. Not a single one of them. Not one of the world's so-called little g-gods or prophets ever came down to this world of rebellious sinners who hated him and who hated him so much, as we're going through John chapter 8 and 9, who hated him so much they wanted to kill him. And knowingly, he came to this rebellious planet. Knowingly, he knew he was going to suffer and die. But he came and willingly died for them. He died for us. Right? There's not one of the false deities anywhere on the entire planet that ever gave himself out of love and to die for the very same creation that rejected him in total. Not one but God. Not one but God. It's only Jesus Christ. Only God through Jesus Christ that demonstrates that kind of love. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Galatians 1 and 4, Jesus gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us out of this present evil age according to the will of God, our God and Father. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also... Christ died also for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might uh, bring us to God. 1 John 4 and 10, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Again, there's that, that, that one word, propitiation, just is one word encapsulated everything that I've just said, that God himself turns away his own anger because of our sin towards him. He comes and he stands in a place and he takes the stroke. He turns his own anger away from himself and pours out his wrath upon his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and pours out on us love. Tremendous statement. If there's any way for man to be reconciled to God apart from sending his dearly beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to die as a substitute and a sacrifice for sinners and suffering at the hands of a godless man, if there was any other way for that reconciliation to be take, to, to occur, if there's any other way for propitiation to happen, then again, I would say, and I've told you a hundred times, God would never have sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world. Out of his love for his son, he would have never sent him if there's any other way. That's one reason God is so angry with these false religious systems and the lies against the truth. Because it is damning men's souls eternally, but it is a lie against the truth, and it's a, God, a lie against the love uh, of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, that says there's another way. 
You're not getting to heaven by good works. You're not getting to heaven by lighting candles or doing good beads or saying Hail Marys or doing acts of so-called righteousness or whatever. You only get through, you only get to heaven through the person of Jesus Christ. There's no other way to reconcile man uh, to God except through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 4 and 12, there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Right? So at the sacrifice of Christ and upon Calvary's uh, cross, that proves our helplessness. That proves our hopelessness. And it also proves God's great love. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Agape is the word. And agape is the love of action, not the love of emotion, not eros or phileo or something like that. It's the love of God that sought to meet our needs. The the love that sought to meet our well-being. It's a determined act of the will that always results in determined act of self-giving. It's a sacrifice of self for the sake of others. Uh, Even uh, those who may not care anything for you and even those who hate you because that's where we all were uh, before God in his kindness awakened us to the truth of the person of Christ. That's agape love. It's God's determined will out of the great love with which he loved us before the foundation of the world that he decided that he would send his son, his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world to die for the sins of mankind, for our sins. To send him into the world because of our sins. And and again, another verse that we just can't let the familiarity do away with the spectacular truth. John 3 and 16, for God so agapied the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Tremendous truth. You know, agape is one of the rarest words in the ancient uh, Greek literature, but one of the most common words in the Greek New Testament. Agape love is the the love of God. Again, it's God's love and and his mercy for sinners that flows out of uh, of his uh, character and nature. It's a the Bible says that, that God's love is eternal, that God's love is sacrificial, that God's love is unconditional, that God's love is personal, that God's love is effectual. Again, John 3 and 16, he, his love he gives so that men would not perish, but have eternal life. So again, when we were in the very depths of our sin, deserving nothing but God's wrath and condemnation, he reached out to us in love and rescued us. And there's nothing in us that caused, us, caused him to do that. It's all his action. Verse 5 says, by grace you've been saved. Charis, uh, God's unreserved or undeserved, unsought for kindness. It's an old, maybe somewhat cliche-ish acronym, but I think it's an apt apt description, grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. I think that's helpful. By grace, by God's riches at Christ's expense, by grace you've been saved. Uh, the word means delivered out of rescued. It comes from the Greek word sozo. It's in the perfect tense, uh, describing something that's permanent. God permanently saves those who are dead in trespasses and sins because of his grace. God permanently rescues. God permanently uh, makes men alive because of his great love through the person of Jesus Christ. And, and uh, by grace you've been saved, uh, it's in the perfect test, but it's also in the passive voice, meaning that it's something that God himself does. Something God does, not something we do. It's all of him. It's all of his work, all of his power, uh, because of his great love with which he has loved us. 
Again, you look and see what the desperate condition that we were in, and you see how profound God's intervention. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Look what he says, verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, dead in our sins, he made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you've been saved. But can't you just hear verse 5? Every time I read verse 5, I hear the amazement in Paul's voice. Even when we were dead in our transgressions. God didn't wait till we got it all together. God didn't wait till we got cleaned up. God didn't wait till we reformed ourselves. God didn't wait till we improved ourselves. God didn't wait until we got better. Now the text says he loved us even when we were dead in our sins. He loved us in spite of ourselves, in spite of our wickedness. And he reached down to us in our corruption, in our vileness, in our foulness, our filth, in our wretched condition. Why? Because he knew we could not and we would not reach up to him. Because salvation is all of the Lord. Spurgeon once said this, God's love does not depend upon what we are. It flows from his own heart. It's not love of something good in us. It's love because of everything good in him. That's helpful. He loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Now, what does a dead person need more than anything else? A dead person needs to come to life, right? He needs to be made alive. And again, that's what salvation does. We talk about that all the time here. Salvation brings spiritual life, new life, regeneration. It means to be born again. God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ. What's true of the believer? Well, now he's alive. Right? He's come to an end of his death. Right? He was born dead in trespasses and sins, but now he's been made, it's present tense, made alive together with Christ. And alive together is a compound word. It means of, speaks of... The first part speaks of an intimate union, and the last part means to make alive or to quicken. So again, uh, the Christian has been given an intimate union of life with Christ and, and caused to be brought to life again. So that's the true Christian. The true Christian is the exact opposite of the non-believer, and the true Christian is the exact opposite of who he once was. No longer dead spiritually, but now presently alive to God in Christ. Made, he made us alive together with Christ. It's, a, and it's an heiress indicative. It just means a statement of fact. Heiress, something that's happened in the past, carrying on to the future, right? It's just an, a statement of fact. This is who the Christian now is. He's alive together with Christ. A, a Christian is given a new life, new affections of his heart, his mind, his will, his emotions, his actions, his motivations. Something happened to him. Because listen, when, when you, what do we call it when someone comes to faith in Christ? They have been what? Born again, right? Stop and think about it. Born again. Birth is an instantaneous process. <laughs> Ever think about that? You're not born until you're born. Here it comes. It's life. Right? And that's what God does for us in Christ. We, weren't, we were dead in our trespasses and sins until God in his mercy awakened us from the dead and united us with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Birth instantaneous. 1 Peter 1 and 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So again, alive together with Christ, we as Christians are now in a new position, right? We were dead spiritually, but now we're alive. Not only were we dead and now alive, but we used to be under a governing power 
that is different than the governing power that we are under now. Right? We are under the power of the prince of the air, the, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. But in Christ, we have a new life, a new spirit. Again, that's regeneration. And regeneration is the act by God which a new principle of life is implanted into the man and a governing disposition to his soul made by the Holy Spirit. Right? That's who we are in Christ. You could say it like this. A person who is in Christ, born again of the Holy Spirit, excuse me, has an entirely new bent in life, an entirely new uh, disposition. That person has turned a different direction, again, with new, no, new motivations and, and, and desires and a new heart. And now a new working power. God, the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit, setting his affections and his minds in a different way. That's why I love that verse, and I've repeated it hundreds of times, I know. But a Christian's been given a new nature. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass, and new things have come. Right? God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you have been saved. Isn't that a great passage of Scripture? So when it comes to being thankful, we can be thankful for a lot of things, but mostly we should be thankful for our salvation, our great salvation. Amen? We should be thankful for the great grace of God that he poured out to us or poured out upon us through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This God who is rich in mercy, this God who has a great love with which he has loved us, and out of his divine grace, out of his divine sovereignty, he chose us to belong to him. Through the marvelous providence and the sovereign plan and the goodness of God, it says in the text, he loved, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. It says, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purposes and grace, which he granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. 2 Timothy 1.9. Right? Saved by grace, made one of his own, given a new life, a new direction, a new hope, new purpose in life. A lot to be thankful for, especially our salvation.